Well, I read this week um, a story that I hope will renew your faith and hope in social media, even just a little bit, or maybe mankind, because I heard about um, an act of love that happened just because of a Facebook post. This woman, whose name is Martha Olson, is an avid runner, but also a postal worker in Michigan, and she had this gal that she ran with who posted something on Facebook about a friend who needed a kidney transplant. Um, and Martha was more than willing to step up and donate her kidney to this perfect stranger, this friend of a friend. Now, the only problem was she wasn't a match. <clears throat> but instead of throwing in the towel and saying, oh, forget it, I guess I don't have to do that, she uh, became a part of a program which is called Paired Kidney Exchange. And this is where Martha ended up giving her kidney to a third party she had never met before. Hers ended up being a kindergarten teacher in Texas. And then that gal's friend, in turn, donated her kidney to Martha's friend of a friend. So these two people got this kidney, but they basically gave the, their kidneys to complete strangers. Well, as happens in these situations, uh, the news finds out about it, the local news, and they come rushing over to Martha Olson's place of work, the post office in Michigan, and they're interviewing her family and her friends and her coworkers about Martha's great gift of her kidney. You know, and they're sticking their microphone in her, their face and they're going, what do you think of Martha's kidney donation? Right? And they said things like, well, I, I mean, I, it made me think, could, could I ever do such a thing? I mean, would I ever be willing to give my kidney to a perfect stranger? Could I ever make such a selfless sacrifice? I just don't know how far I could go to care for people. And maybe those are the kinds of questions you had in your mind when you heard that this woman gives her kidney to a perfect stranger who needs it. Well, that is our lesson today. And God is actually going to urge us, no, wait, he's going to command us to have that kind of selfless, sacrificial love for one another. And he's going to ask us to do the remarkable thing that Martha Olson did for our fellow Christians as a pattern of our lives. Now, it actually is um, one of three tests that we're going to find in the book of 1 John. We've actually already come across all three of them. But these tests in the book of 1 John won't give you a driver's license or a teaching credential. They're the tests of the genuineness of your faith. They're a test that will prove whether or not you're a real Christian. Now the first test we looked at a while ago, which was the test of righteousness. And remember we asked the question, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The second text, test in the book of 1 John is the test of doctrine. And we've had a couple lessons on that. In fact, just last week, Stephanie was telling us that, brilliantly, that the way to make sure you can spot a fake, an error, is to be intimately and incredibly acquainted with the real thing, our Bibles. And then this other test, the third test, has been woven throughout, in particular the last couple chapters, but it's the test of love. The attest of this selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, for the good of others, love. That's where we're going to be today. Looking again at the test of love and it proving whether or not we're real Christians. Now, here at Compass, uh, 
I think we could all agree we got the righteous living thrust and the pure doctrine thrust down probably as well as any church you've ever been to. But I will tell you that the thing that we get complaints about more often than not is that maybe we could be a little tiny bit more loving. Now, I have a unique perspective on this though because I get to see and I get to hear about all of you a lot. And because of that, I know that that criticism isn't even true. That complaint is not true because you are loving and you do care about each other and so do your pastors and so does your staff. But we wanna prove them wrong, whoever them is, right? We are loving, but, but we could even be loving more, right? This is one of those messages. Uh, a message about love is like a message about prayer. Every one of us is gonna walk out of here convicted. I mean, do you ever go to a message about prayer and you think, oh, perfect, I've got it all down. No, even if you're a great prayer, you walk out thinking, I could do better, right? Maybe I'm doing okay, but I could do better. It's exactly what a message on love is gonna do for you. Conviction and I could do better, no matter if you're the most loving person in this room. But this test is definitely a test that we want to pass. Um, not only does Philippians 1.9 tell us that we should be abounding in love more and more, not only do we want to silence our critics, but we want to pass this test because it's proof of our salvation and because our God is telling us this is what our lives should be all about. So let's begin looking into what we have to do to pass the test. Starting in verse 7 of 1 John 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. As I said, John is going to command us to love one another. In fact, he's gonna do it three times. Every single point, we're gonna have the command, love one another, love one another, love one another. And our quest today is to love one another better, which I hope this is what will happen to you. But it starts by deciding. We're gonna to have to decide to do this. He commanded it, we're gonna to have to choose to do it. Um, it's, it's not gonna happen on accident, it's gonna take intentionality in our part, which is where we're gonna put, for, for point number one, we're gonna put decide to love like God loves, because that's where we have to start. We have to decide to love like God does. He commands it, now let's do it. It's gonna take our commitment, um, our decision to go after this. And then he begins this section by calling them beloved, which means well-loved, precious, dearly loved, which we go, aw. I mean, it's a sweet sentiment, but it's kind of interesting that he says, look how loved you are. Now go love others. I mean, it wasn't an accident. You are loved. So now I want you to love like that. You've received it. And a lot of us, you know, especially in our culture, it's all like, I got mine. Go away. You're not gonna, I'm not gonna give you any of this. That's not the way John wants us to be. You are beloved. Now go love others. And he doesn't say feel love for people. He doesn't say have familial, family love for one another. He uses the word agape, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, for the good of others, Martha Olson kind of love. That's the word he uses. And it's a selfless love that's described a lot in our Bibles, but I'm gonna remind you of just a couple places that I think define it for us. One of them is Philippians 2, 3, through four. I'd like you to listen to it as though you haven't heard it before. 
And I'd like you to listen to it as though it's the description of what love is, because that's what it is. Here it is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, don't go after things that are gonna make you look good or be propped up. Do nothing from selfishness, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, more important than you, more important than your agenda today, more important than your to-do list, more important than your car or your house or your time. Hmm. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, what you want today, this week, this year, but also to the interests of others. What do they want? What do they need? Wow. Then there's Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. And while Philippians focused on actions, Colossians 3 focuses on our heart of love. Colossians 3 says this, that we should show compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And here's the hardest one on the list. We should bear with one another if you have a complaint against another, one another and forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. There's an action and there's a heart of love. I didn't say you feel it. it I mean, you know, your heart is still about having the right actions of kindness and forgiveness. Well, God wants us to do both. He wants us to live in peace in this place no matter what that woman thinks of COVID, or schooling, or vaccinations, or politics. He wants you to live at peace with them, and love them, and seek their good, and selflessly care for them. That's the command of the passage today. And it's, the word love is not love like one and done. You just gotta do one grand gesture and you're done. No, it's in the present tense. It's a continual keep acting this way when it says love one another. Now, when we get to verse eight, it basically says the same thing as verse seven if you looked at it closely, except it's all in reverse. This time it says, if you don't show love, it proves you're not a Christian. <sighs> Talk about a wake up call. If you don't show love, it proves you're not a Christian because unconditional love is not optional for the Christian. It is not optional. It is not reserved for people in this room happen to be, who happen to be good at it. Some of us are good at loving others. Some of us have to choose hard to love others. But we all have to do it. So it's not just for people who are good at it. It's not even just for people who you feel warm and fuzzy about already. Like maybe the people who live in your address, under your roof, at your address. This kind of love is... We're gonna do good to everybody. We're gonna live at peace with all the people in this room and beyond. And none of us really want that, let's face it. If it was up to us, and I think we could all agree, we'd rather be at home in our pajamas, uh, minding our own business, uh, soaking up the Lord's goodies for us, and you know, being there all nice and having playing games and having fun and eating meals with our family and friends. Everybody would prefer that. I mean, that's the easiest and most rewarding, personally, um, selfless love. But this verse, it won't let us do that. Well, at least it won't let us do that alone. It says, if you don't love, 
you're not a Christian. Now, there was a group of people in the New Testament times, Jesus rubbed shoulders with all the time, who had the righteous living and the pure doctrine down cold. Only problem is they didn't have the love. They had no compassion for others. They stood aloof. All they were concerned about was their reputation, their agenda, their thing. And because of that, they were the target of Jesus' continual condemnation during his time on earth. You know who they are, right? You remember, you're well taught. I know you're well taught. I was gonna say from this place, but it's been a while, from that place. You are well taught, the Pharisees, right? May we never see ourselves in them. Jesus continually condemned them. John says next, at the end of this verse, we love because God is love. Now it's an an interesting way to put it because it doesn't mean love is just an attribute of God. When it says God is love, it actually means in his essence, he is love. All that he is, is love. And to help you to, us all to understand it better, it says God is love, right? Just imagine putting someone else's name in that sentence. Your pastor's name, your mom's name, your husband's name. Instead of God is love, you know, your mom. Evelyn is love. Betty is love. Joanne is love. Whoa, you would never say that. Even if you had the most loving mom ever, you would never say, you know, her name is love. Okay, you would say Evelyn is loving, but you'd never say she is love because it'd be like, wow, she's the epitome of love. She, everything she is is love. There's no one who could be more loving. She's perfect at loving. She's totally loving. But see, that's true of God. In every attribute he has, he is love. In his essence, he is love. Now, it's easy to see when we think of things like he paid for our sins. It's easy for us to go, okay, yes, loving. Check, he is love. And we might even say, you know, God is love when he provides for our needs. And when he directs the affairs of the universe. That's sovereignty, by the way. But what about when his sovereignty means he gives you a test you didn't want? God is still love. Even his justice is loving when he judges the lost who did not get his payment for their sin. His wisdom is loving, his justice is loving, his sovereignty is loving, his holiness is loving. God is love. He's love through and through. Now we're called Christians. That means little Christs. Little Christs, which means we should look just like him, right? It means our DNA is his, right? Or I should say his DNA is ours. His DNA flows through our veins, so we should look just like him. If God is love, we should be love. We should act just like he does. Now, obviously, this says we are to love one another, and you know one another means Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, but you also know that God loves non-Christians, If he didn't, none of us would be here (laughs) because every single one of us was a non-Christian before we were a Christian. And he reached out and loved us, right? He loves non-Christians too. And we need to love non-Christians too, which becomes a lot harder 
I mean, I know you think it's hard to love the people in your household. It's actually a lot harder to love the non-Christians outside of your household. But you need to use your influence for good because the most loving thing we can do for a non-Christian is help them be a Christian. Help them repent and come to know the God of love that we know. We love for the good of others, we serve for the good of others, and hopefully someday people will say of us, like father, like daughter. Wouldn't that be an amazing, wonderful day? Well, what that all means though is that if you don't have a heart of love beating inside your chest right now, it's a problem. It's a serious problem. It's time for us to have a heart check. If, if this says if you're not loving, you're not a Christian, you gotta look at your heart if you don't see an attitude of love and selflessness towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, it could be that um, you just, you fully, truly need to repent for the very first time and become a real follower of Christ. Or it could mean that you need to repent for the hundredth time because you haven't been earnestly following the command to love one another. Either way, we need to repent if our heart is not beating in love and selflessness for others. We have to have loving relationships with the women in this room and the Christians we meet. There can be no division, there could be no pettiness, there can be no unforgiveness, there could be no grudge holding where you sit on one side of the room at one table and she sits on the other because you just don't wanna cross paths with her. None of that is loving. None of that is loving one another better like God wants us to. But I wanna tell you that if you even feel a bit of encouragement, excuse me, conviction right now, that's a good sign. That's a good sign that the Holy Spirit is living inside of you and pressing down on you and you really are born again. It's a good thing. Conviction is a good thing. It's a great sign of life. Hmm. But like one commentator says, we need to do this. To know God's love is to show God's love. I mean, that's, that's as simple as, as it is. To know God's love is to show God's love. But before we leave this committing or deciding to love, we're gonna decide to do it. We said we have to have a heart check, you gotta make sure you're a Christian. But if you think you are a Christian here, let's take a minute to evaluate ourselves. It's like when you join a gym. <laughs> what do they say to you first? How about we take your measurements? And you go, no thank you. They say, you wanna measure your arm? You go, how about my wrist? That's part of my arm too, right? Let's measure your thigh. No, let's make it the ankle, right? <laughs> let's evaluate where we started it, where we started when we walked in, okay? I want you to grade yourself. I want you to grade yourself on your selfless love at this point in your life, okay? A. A means excellent. Very little room for improvement. You're loving like God does. Awesome. Excellent. A. Okay? B means good. Better than most at this abounding and love thing. C. C specifies average. Just okay. Lots of Christians are doing better at it. D below average, 
Hardly ever put the interests of others before your own. F, failure. On an exam, it's usually 50%. This is usually falls in the category of refusing to love others. I mean, I'm too important, my kids are too important, I don't have time. I'm not gonna love anybody else. <sighs> okay, so I'm not a Christian or I gotta create myself on love. Thanks so much, Carlen, awesome. Okay, whatever that grade is that you have in your head right now, and I hope you really did it, just take a deep breath. Okay? Now, take that grade, and I want you to give it up to God. Yeah, this is, this is what I think I deserve. Okay? But right now in your head, I want you to pray to him, and I want you to tell him you want to do better. You want to raise your grade this semester. You're committed to doing that because you've decided you're gonna love like Christ. And let's move forward, okay? All right, verse nine says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Okay, we see the second time here that God has commanded us to love, except now he's going to give us the example of himself, of the Father giving the Son. That's the example. Talk about love. That is extravagant love. That's over-the-top love, but that's going to be our example. For point number two, we need to learn from God's extravagant love. Learn from God's extravagant love. He's gonna be our role model. He's gonna be our example. He's gonna help us to push the envelope. Learn from God's extravagant love. It says God's love was manifest. That means he was put on display for you and I to see. That's all it means. Show it. He's showing his love when he sent Jesus to earth. And oh, what a sacrifice that was. Just think about it for a minute. Jesus was totally God. He was living in a perfect relationship with his father, side by side, I know they're not bodies, they're spirits, but side by side, perfect relationship, perfect place with beings around him who understood him and honored him the way he should have been. And he decided to give all that up because he loved us and to come down to earth where he knew people would reject him and one day kill him. That was extravagant love, right? It's quite a sacrifice. Then the passage says God sent his only son. And it's more than just he was an only child. The word only here actually means one and only. It means unique. It means precious. It means they had a sweet relationship with one another that was different and special. One and only. Which also shows us how costly the sacrifice would have been when you have that kind of relationship. And it says it was all God. He initiated everything. It says not that we have loved God, but he loved us. He initiated it. We probably didn't even want anything to do with it. We would never have sought him without his help. And then it says he purchased our propitiation. That means that everything we needed to appease the justice of a holy God for our sin was provided for us. He appeased God's justice. He made the payment for our sins. 
Now, we have a living, breathing picture of this kind of father-son sacrifice. We just read it in our DBR. Mike has referenced it a couple times in sermons recently in Genesis 22, but it's so important to see the father-son that I want you to see with your own eyes. I'm gonna have you turn to Genesis 22. I want you to see the father-son sacrifice lived out with a bunch of little details. Genesis 22, verse one, I'm just gonna start. After these things, that means after the birth of Isaac and the departure of Ishmael, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And we could go into all these little details and it would be so sweet, but we don't have time. Here I am, I mean, come on. He keeps saying that if you see it here. Okay, he says, here I am, and he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wait a minute. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the one the descendants were supposed to come to. They had waited for Isaac for years. Abram's 100, Sarah's 90. They waited 25 years for the promise of a son to be fulfilled. That's the one you want him to go and offer? It also says your only son, same word as we just read in 1 John 4, 9. Your only son, one and only, precious, what we just described. Offer that son, slit his throat, slit his throat and sacrifice him. Verse three gets even more excruciating. It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood. I mean, can you imagine? He's chopping the wood, knowing that's gonna go be part of the burnt offering. He's chopping the wood for the burnt offering and he rose and he went to the place which God had told him and on the third day, Abraham raised up his eyes and saw the place from afar. He gathered the supplies, he left immediately, not even one day of hesitation. He rose early in the morning, it says, got the wood, took off, and as he's three days out, I, I mean, sure, three days passed so quickly. As he's three days out, he points to the mountain and says, that's where I want you to do it, Abraham. <sighs> Verse five says, then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son, so Isaac's carrying the wood up the hill. He took in his hand the fire and the knife and they went both of them together. And then Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he says, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they went both of them on together. Can you imagine when Isaac turns to him and asks them that question, must, what must have, I mean, what must Abraham's stomach and chest and everything have been when Isaac's little face looks up to him, hmm, where's the lamb, dad? <sighs> Abraham must have had to take a deep breath and steady his voice before he explained that God would provide. And they pressed on. Verse nine says, when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on, on, the, top, on the altar on top of the wood. You know, they had to build the altar. That means like, Isaac, go get some rocks. All right, let's build it. So side by side, how long must that have taken? Rock after rock after rock after rock, standing there with his son, building the altar. And then at some point, Abraham had to turn to Isaac and he had to explain to him what God had asked him to do. We don't see that in the story, but we know it had to have happened. 
And you know what the amazing, incredible thing is? Isaac led him. You know, Isaac was probably a 10 to 13-year-old boy. Do you think that he couldn't have gotten away from his 110-year-old elderly father? You bet he could have. He could have fought. He could have run. But in my mind's eye, I think Isaac went like this to his father. Okay, bind me up. And he laid right there on the altar. And at that point, Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. And at that point, our hearts are like, no, no, don't do it. And we can imagine Abraham taking the knife from the sheath, right, to slit his son's throat. And then at verse 11, we're all so relieved because verse 11 happens and the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. He says, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, seeing that you've not withhold your son, your only son. And of course, then they see the ram caught in the thicket and he offers him instead. And God says, I know you love me because you obey me. You love me first. You were even willing to do this very costly thing because I asked you to. It was heartbreaking. I mean, especially if you're a mom here, you're like, there's no way. How could he possibly do that? How could he possibly love God that much? But you know, there was another father who sent his son to earth to have much worse done to him. And he willingly did it. Because the father sent the son, Jesus, to endure something much worse even than that march up that hill. And sadly, sometimes when we read it in our DBR or even sitting here or doing our Bible study questions, we don't even flinch. I mean, you're all balled up because I just read a story that, by the way, didn't happen in the end. But our father sent his son and it had to go all the way through to the crushing last minute and the last breath. And it wasn't a slit throat. It was a way worse than that. And we need to remember that Jesus was a real person. Yes, he was God, but he was a real person. He had nerve endings just like you do. You know, when you, you, when you poked yourself this morning with the knife cutting a bagel, it, it hurt, right? You bled. And he endured so much worse, right? He had a whip with bones and metal pieces stuck to it, ripped across his back. He was mocked and jeered stark naked. Then they put a gigantic stake through his wrists and through his ankles on a splintered pole that they shoved up against his open back. Then they hung him there so he could suffocate for hours. But probably the worst part that the father, and imagine the father's watching all of this, his precious one and only son. Probably the worst part was when he had to take the sins of you and me and everyone else and his father had to turn his face away so that he could pay our propitiation so that he could appease the justice of God on our behalf. Extravagant love. If he loved you that much, nobody's ever gonna take that away from you. And if he loved you that much, he should have to do nothing else to prove his love for you, ever, in your entire life. So don't doubt it. And don't sit there and worry about if you deserve it or not. Because let me just tell you the truth, you don't deserve it. And neither do I. None of us deserve it. But that is the extravagant love he gave us. And that is the extravagant love that he modeled for us so that we could love like that. 
so that we could love one another better. And just like Isaac, Jesus did all that willingly. Isaiah 53, five describes it like this. He, Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Praise the Lord. That's how he loved us. Well, verse 11 goes on. And interestingly enough, it does not say, beloved, if God so loved us, like we just described, if God so loved us like that, we ought to love him like that. It's not what it says. It says, beloved, if God so loved us like that, we also ought to love one another, each other. If God loved us like that, we're supposed to love each other, he says. Wait a minute, but... How does my small group member, the fellow small group member I sit next to, or my kid's Sunday school teacher, or you know, the lady who sits down the road from me at you know, outside church on Saturday night, uh, how do they deserve that kind of love from me? They deserve it because God loved them like that. They deserve it because they're his kid. They deserve it because he told us to love others like that. The verse we're reading here says we ought to love others like that. Ought, it's an accounting word. It means we owe it to God. It means we're indebted to do this because he loved us so much. Well, we have to love others this extravagant way. And as I studied the picture of Abraham and Isaac and Jesus and the Father, I thought of some ways, ways, big bucket ways that we need to love each other. The first one I saw is we need to love each other sacrificially. Sacrificially. In other words, our love for each other is going to cost. It costs him dearly, it's going to cost us dearly. And I mean, that's not to say you don't love when it you know, happens to fit into your schedule or you happen to have some extra money at the end of the month. Of course, love them, that's great. But that's not the only time you should be loving. You should be loving even when it costs you something. Even when it's hard to do it, when it doesn't fit in your day. You should be ready to love sacrificially. And First um, John 3.16, we studied it a few weeks back in 2020. It said this, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's sacrificially. Another way that we see big bucket, what, that we see how to love, is God loved us proactively. God loved us proactively. It said in the passage we just read that we weren't seeking him, he sought us. He reached out to us. And our love for each other needs to be like that too. We need to make the first move. We need to be proactive. And again, back to that passage in 1 John 3, now 17. It said, if you see a need and you close your heart, how can the love of God live in you? If you see a need, you need to meet a need, ladies. Verse 18 went on there, said, went on there and said, we must not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We have to love proactively. That's how he did it. That's how we should do it. And then in places like, this is a new passage, Luke 14, 12 to 14. This one instructs us that God wants us to love impartially. Impartially. We need to love all Christians. Not just people we think deserve it, 
people who live under our roof, people who will love us back, or even people in our stage of life. We gotta love them all, impartially. This story in Luke 14 is the one where Jesus talks about having a dinner party. And he says, don't just invite your family and friends. He says, invite people who cannot reciprocate. Go and invite you know, the lame, the, clip, the crippled, but go invite everyone. They can't reciprocate. That's gonna make this harder. You're getting nothing out of it. That's okay. We need to love impartially. But how can I do that right now? Well, I pretty much only have one post-it note for you for this point. One word, listen. That's all you have to do to, to start the journey into love. You need to listen. Because if you listen to the people when you go to small group, or as you walk to your car, or when you see them on Sunday, or at your Thrive Mentor meeting, here's what you're gonna hear when you listen. You will hear, oh, I have a big test at CBI. I'm just so stressed out, what am I gonna do? Blah, 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 blah. You know, I have all the studying to do, I can't do it. Okay, and you can jump in, and in a loving way, you can start sending them encouragement, or maybe a plate of cookies. Because you listened, you can now act. Okay, when you listen, you're gonna hear something like this. My husband and I have not been in a date night for three months. And what can you do? I'll babysit. Just bring your kids over. It'll be a fun family night. Awesome, all the kids, we'll have pizza, it'll be great. Drop them off at five. Okay, when you listen, you'll hear, I'm just not feeling so good right now. You don't run screaming from them, no, get away. No, you say, hey, can I grab your Costco list for you? How about someone who says, I'm having a health crisis. You hear them talk about this health crisis. You hear them talk about these tests they've been having. If you love them, you'll sit with them while they await the results. Sit six feet apart, put your mask on, be outside, whatever you have to do, but don't leave them alone. Don't leave them alone because you love them. When you listen, you're gonna hear what people need you to pray for. They may not say it. All you have to do is think about what they're saying, though. If they're telling you what they're stressed out about, could you stop and pray for that? Absolutely. Can you pray for it later? Absolutely. Can you double back and tell them you love them and you're praying for them? Absolutely. But all you did was listen. You listened and it led you down a path of love. So when you come in here, don't just talk to your eight best friends. Okay? When you go to church, Walk by that person who's sitting alone. Ask them how they're doing. Invite them to, you know, take out lunch at the park. <laughs> we live in such weird times. Or your HFG or your Zoom meeting, whatever. Um, talk to people who are by themselves. Thank people like our tech team and our gatekeepers and our kids' ministry and, our, and your small group leader today. Gratitude is part of loving people too. And then if you hear someone talking about sin that they're in, because you're listening, remember? Be loving enough to get involved in their life and help them fight it. Hold them accountable. Kindly, cautiously, right? But it's still love. All of those things are love. And of course, the biggest one of all is listen to announcements, the website, whatever, and get a ministry post. This is a way that you can permanently and clearly, and even in a costly way, love others in the body of Christ. Your gifts were given to you and they're great. And we like to go, ooh, look, look what God gave me. Look what I can do. That's awesome. 
but it's not for you. <laughs> it's for you to love others and do it for the good of this place. That's why God gave you that gift that you have. So we listen and then we go out and we do some of this extravagant love that God modeled for us. Yes, righteous living is important. Yes, pure doctrine is important, but so is love. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, we're committed to love and we're gonna have Jesus as our example. But frankly, if you're anything like me, you're nervous right now. I mean, how can I possibly do this? It's like, the bar is so high and it's getting higher. How does Garland expect us to do this? Yeah, I know, I feel it too. I'm supposed to love everyone, every day, all the time? Yeah, I'm, I'm just as exhausted as you are. You're thinking, I can't even empty my dishwasher. Yes, I know. I am having my house repiped right now and all the furniture is crammed in and there's drywall and painters and inspectors coming today that I couldn't be home for. So, you know, I get it. I get how tired you are. Verses 12 to 16, God's gonna give us some help, okay? Verse 16, he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. I'm gonna boil all that down and tell you that I know you're feeling overwhelmed, but God himself is going to be your help, okay? You need to trust him and work to do the love you're called to do with his strength and because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That's how you can do this. We're gonna need to trust God to love better. That's point number three. We're gonna need to trust God to love better. It's the only way we can do this. This said the Spirit lives inside us, so let's trust God to love better. Verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one can see an invisible God, but when you and I love, they do see an invisible God. They see him through us. John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are showing a watching world, God, when we love. I've said it probably a hundred times in my lifetime and I'll probably say it a hundred more, Lord willing, but uh, that is that you might be the only Jesus that people ever see. Because when you love each other, it's not just each other that gets to see it. It's not just Christians that get to see it. Non-Christians get to see it when you love others. And it makes a difference in their lives. Yeah, it draws attention to you, but it draws attention to our church. But most important, it draws attention to God. When you love, they see him, this invisible God. You know, God left us here, he didn't take us to heaven immediately, and that's because he wanted us to influence people. Of course, he wants us to bring more non-Christians with us. He wants us to love one another so they will see and we can help them to repent. But he also wants us to in use that influence on each other too, of course, um, be more sanctified, but he's wanting us to get more people to come with us, which is where John goes in verse 14 and 15, there's that weird like almost nod to the gospel all of a sudden. Yeah, 
it's a poetic way of saying it, but um, the greatest gift of love is that God sent the son to earth to be the savior of the world. And then he also did the greatest gift of love for us because he helped us confess that he's not just the savior of the world, he's my savior. So there's that weird 14, 15, okay? Then he says at the end of 12, when God loves us and we love others, it's almost like it closes the circuit. It says our love is perfected, it closes the circuit. It's just right, it's that teleos word that word that it's just the way it's supposed to be. When God loves us and we love others and it closes the circuit, it's just like it's supposed to be. It's just right. But how do we get the just right? Verse 13 is the key to this whole point. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. He gave us his spirit, that's who we trust to do this love thing. And verse 16 kind of tells us how. But again, it's poetic, John's being poetic. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Obviously abide is a theme. It's actually six times right here. To abide means to live with, to remain, to stay with. If we stay with God, if we trust in God and we stay close to him, we're gonna be able to love. We have a continual, constant, permanent relationship with God. Jesus used that image of the vine and the branches. This is where, think that. Think of that image, the vine and the branches. We're so connected that the empowering that we need to love comes through the vine and out into the branches and enables us to bear much fruit. Think back to Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. What's the first one? Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Think vine, empowering, Branches, that's us. Now we can bear fruit and we can love. We can do exactly what God wants us to, but when we stay close to him, when we stick near him, when we abide with him, we will bear much fruit. But that passage in John 15 with the vine and the branches says, apart from me, you can do nothing. When you're distant from him, when you're not enabled by him, you won't be bearing the fruit of love that we're talking about here. And that reminds me of Cain. We learned about him a couple weeks ago, Cain. Cain was refusing to love, right? He was sitting over there in the corner and it said sin was crouching at his door. Do you remember that image? And God came up to him in Genesis. What did God do? He tried to redirect him. He encouraged him. He tried to get him to repent. He actually was trying to get him to love his brother Abel, right? But Cain went, Nope, put my hand up in God's face. God the Holy Spirit lives inside you. When you're distant, he wants to come up next to you and talk to you and say, hey, hey, time to redirect. Let me encourage you, help you to repent so that you can go love again because I want you to bear much fruit for me. Well, selfless love isn't natural. It is supernatural. It's the almighty, loving Holy Spirit doing it through you. And you had a homework verse, which was Luke 6. Luke 6, 32 to 36 was the one that said, um, if you love those who love you, you're no different than the world. You're no different than the Gentiles. They all love the people who love them. But he encouraged them to love those who 
don't love them, to love their enemies, and then they would be like God when they did that. It's a God thing when we have that kind of selfless love. But inevitably, you guys are gonna come to a day, which I do too, and I, I say it happens all the time, actually, where you're overwhelmed and you just think, I can't love anymore. My reservoir of godly wisdom is empty. <laughs> I'm out of gas. I, I can't do it. I cannot sit one more hour with one more person. When that happens, I want you to remember my favorite Christmas present this year. When you're done, you're like, I'm, 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 I'm out, I'm, I'm finished. My favorite Christmas present this year was my Roomba. And it actually wasn't even on my list. And don't you dare judge my husband for giving me a Roomba. Because he also gave me what was on my list. My Apple Watch was dying and I got my replacement Apple Watch and I got a Roomba. I mean, I have a very generous husband. It was an unexpected surprise, this Roomba. You know, the Roomba does a really good job. I mean, you just let it go and it does what it was designed to do. It serves and cleans and loves my floors all day long, right? But it can only do that if it's been recharged. It can only do that if it's spent time at the recharging dock. And if it hasn't spent time at the recharging dock, you know what happens? It just dies wherever it is. I don't care what middle of the kitchen floor, laundry room, living room, just dead, just stops. If it hasn't spent time at the recharging station, it doesn't have what it need, needs to do what it's designed to do. Well, there's another thing that happens to my Roomba now and then, and that is my Roomba gets into trouble. <laughs> there's a problem. And actually, my Roomba's great because my Roomba cries out to me. It sends me notifications on my phone. It says, I have a problem, help me, help me. And actually, it's so funny, it's so dramatic. I have to laugh, because my, my Roomba is really, she's a drama queen, and when she gets into trouble, she doesn't just say, I'm in trouble, she says, it says, your Roomba's in trouble. She's about to go off a cliff. I'm like, okay. She's on the first floor, so she ain't going off any cliffs. But she's so dramatic, she just can't, you know, handle it. And what are those problems she encounters? She gets, she runs over a cord. Or maybe she has the bathroom rug caught up. And this morning, she got caught under the recliner, the back of the recliner. And she was going off a cliff. Well, you know what? What happens when she cries out to me? Big, omnipotent Roomba deliverer rushes to her aid, picks her up, and rushes her over to another spot where she can freely clean the living room, and she's just fine, and she moves on. She's gotta go to the charging station every day, or she runs out of gas. And she has to have that opportunity to call out for help when she's stuck. I hope you see where I'm going here. There's some things that we need to do if we're gonna trust God to love people like we're supposed to. The first one is recharge. We call it our quiet time, you can call it whatever you want, but you gotta go recharge. You gotta spend time at the dock with God. You gotta fight for it. You gotta do it every day. You gotta have all the elements, reading, studying, praying, 
linger there at the dock so that you'll have what you need to do what you were designed to do, to love others. Do it for him, do it for you. I know that's why we do our quiet time most times. Now I want you to do it for the people you're gonna love that day. And the second one my Roomba reminded us of was we've gotta pray. The Roomba cries out, she has no shame, she doesn't care, she's got a problem, she needs me. Cry out, pray, tell God what's happening and he will come, he is all powerful. You think he's gonna look at your little problems and be like, I just can't handle this. Of course not, it's like me looking at my Roomba going, this is no big deal. I can handle it for you. I will rush in and help you and God will do the same for you. We gotta recharge, we gotta pray. The third one doesn't come from my Roomba, sadly. <laughs> but the third thing I think we need to do in order to successfully trust God and get through this loving others thing is to look to tomorrow. Look to tomorrow. And the reason why I say that is because the stories, especially the ones we were looking at here today, they're continually telling us that God has great plans for those who love like he does. One of the stories that we talked about was the dinner guests, inviting people that aren't your family, inviting people who won't reciprocate. The punchline of that story was God will repay you in the resurrection. And the story that you did in your homework about loving your enemies, loving those that the world doesn't expect, the punchline of that story was your reward will be great if you do that. And then another one that just came up in our DBR a couple days ago, the cup of cold water, right? And you know the cup of cold water, that was a big deal. We got 100 Kirklands back there, it doesn't matter to us, but there's a, giving a cup of cold water to your brother and sister of Christ when you didn't have 50 Kirklands behind you, you were actually sacrificing something, that was a big deal. The punchline of that story in your DBR was you will not lose your reward if you love your brother or sister like that. So recharge, pray and look to tomorrow. And never forget what Jesus promised. In John 14, 16, he said, I will ask the Father, and he will send you a helper. You know it, now remember it, think it, and trust God to love others, because you can do it. Well, in World War II, there were lots of heroes, and I'm sure you know about many of them, but I wanna introduce you to a guy whose name was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. Butch O'Hare was a naval aviator who was stationed, well, on an aircraft carrier in the South Pacific. And on February 20th, 1942, just a couple months after we entered the war, he was sent with his squadron of planes out on an important mission. The only trouble is that once he got up in the air, he looked down at his fuel gauge and realized that someone had forgotten to top off his gas tank. So he realized that he would have no opportunity to go on the mission with the rest of the planes. So he kind of signaled to his commander, well, I don't know how they did it, out of gas, whatever they did, and he said, okay, go on back, right? Head on back to the aircraft carrier in the Pacific. Well, as Butch O'Hare turned back and started heading back to the aircraft carrier, he realized that he could see something on the horizon. He saw a squadron of Japanese planes coming across the horizon. He looked down at the fleet, he looked over at his squadron and he realized, okay, I, I can't get to them, they're not coming back. These guys are sitting ducks right here. What am I gonna do? I can't warn them, I can't get them to come back, what can I do? He did the only thing he felt like he could do, to divert the attention away from the American fleet. He took his plane and he rammed it in to that squadron of Japanese planes. 
and he decided to take his machine guns on his wings and put all his 50 caliber rounds, just spray them, and he just continually flew in and out among them and sprayed them with every piece of ammunition that he had. He was doing anything he could to keep them from the fleet. But of course, inevitably, he ran out of bullets. He said, what can I do now? I have my plane. So then he took his plane and he started crashing into them. Take a wing off here, take a tail off there. Crash, crash, crash. Do whatever I can in a desperate attempt to keep them from getting to the ships below him. Well, at one point he forced them to turn back, and they did. And Butch O'Hare and his, you know, struggling, tattered plane made it back to the aircraft carrier. There was a camera on his plane that recorded everything that had happened. And Butch O'Hare, in the end, had taken out five Japanese planes. Because of that, he was awarded the first Navy ace and given the Congressional Medal of Honor. Well, Butch O'Hare actually died in combat a year later. He was only 29 years old. But his hometown did not want him to go without recognition. So they decided that they would name their airport for him. And the next time you're in Chicago, you'll be standing in the O'Hare International Airport named in his honor. That's what our lesson's all about. Sacrifice, selflessness, love, duty. And it would be a great story if that's all there was. But there's more. There's more because I want to tell you how Butch O'Hare became the man that he became. He became the naval aviator and the selfless servant that he was because of one man, his father. His father's name was Edward O'Hare, and Edward O'Hare had spent his entire adult life being the fast-talking, slimy lawyer for Al Capone. And uh, at one point in his life, Edward O'Hare decided to inform on his boss. And within hours, he had been silenced. Artful Eddie, as they knew him, had been taken down by two shotgun blasts. When he had been asked why was he ratting out his boss, this is what he said. He said, I'm ratting out my boss, I'm informing on him, because I want to give my son a break. I want my son to be able to do something good with his life. You see, Butch O'Hare had applied to uh, Annapolis, and the admissions department there in the Naval Academy refused to let him into their school until they knew that his family's mob connections were severed forever. And that was the day that Eddie walked into the police station and told them everything he could about his boss and gave his life so that his son could do something good. You see, love begets love. That father loved that son, and that son went out and loved that entire fleet. Our father loves us. He wants us to go love others. And to love them better, hopefully, after a lesson like this. We've decided to do it. We have a great model. We need to trust him. Let's do it. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you loved us the way you did. And even saying that, those words like that seems so small 
and simple compared to the extravagant love and sacrifice that we talked about today. I pray, Lord, that you would not let us take it for granted and that we would do what you have asked us to do and that is if you loved us like that, we ought to love our sisters like that. Please help us, Lord. We trust you and we're going to do what we can to love one another better. In Jesus' name, amen.